of men going round taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. Oh, and I am Jim Laskowski. I can't think of a better way to take a break from uh, studying for finals than recording a podcast with one of my favorite people in the room. And um, one of my favorite longtime fans of the show, actually, mm-hmm. is our guest, um, Robert Reinecke. And we actually pronounce his name correct. Correct. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> so welcome. Um, we're long, very excited to have you on time, the show. Longtime fan of the show. But let's not define him by that. He is also a writer, of course, and film critic in his own right. He writes for the Where the Long Tail Ends. Yes, <laughs> you've been writing about uh, Kurosawa recently. Oh, m- more than recently for the <laughs> almost the past two years, I've been doing uh, one, well, almost one column a month about the films of Kurosawa, starting from the beginning and working my way towards the end. Uh, now up to. Uh, I believe you'll see month or uh, this coming week you'll see uh, the Hidden Fortress come up. So we'll be about eighteen into his uh, thirty film uh, canon at that point. Oh, that's incredible! And are there other uh, places online that you've written before in the past? Um, occasionally, I've, I've written for Batman on film in the past, and you can find some of my stuff there. Oh, cool. um, can you explain to me I, we before I'm sorry before we started recording we re- we briefly talked about this and you mentioned Batman on film what is that It's uh, basically a Batman uh, fan site about uh, the films from uh, uh basically it's it's a website run by uh, Bill Ramey out of uh, uh Texas and he's been a longtime fan he's been basically uh lobbying for serious dark take on Batman since the 1990s, late 1990s, and it's uh, basically a fan community and a sounding board for that site. Interesting. That's, uh, you must have, I I forget (laughs) sometimes that there are like actual pockets of people who, they're not just comic book fans, they're Batman fans, and and man, they must have been really excited when Dark Knight came out. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, Uh, they, They were really excited I, for every little bit of info that came out mm-hmm. uh, about it, and um, they're they're really big fans of Nolan, and they're trying to wrap their heads around about what comes next. Yeah, I know Kevin Smith sort of capitalized on that by creating his own surprise, 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 a whole other separate podcast uh, dedicated to Batman, and decided to call it Fat Man on Batman uh, on the Smodcast Network over there. He just he's at this point uh, only putting out podcasts. It would seem. Which is uh, good for him. That's what he's good at. Stop making movies. You're good at talking. You're not good at making other people talk and filming them. (laughs) So do podcasts. I'm glad that he found an outlet. Well, I guess I'm not glad because he's kind of a dick. So it's not like, oh, I'm glad that he finally found a success. But (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, Iowa, he found something he's good at. You can't be too mad at him for that. Yeah. No, and he puts out good shows. I mean, that's... I haven't listened to him because I can't stand the man, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I've, wa- I've watched like an evening with Kevin Smith and it's it's fine like those those sort of things his are anecdotes are really entertaining yeah yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, and that's what a podcast is, basically. Uh, yeah. Not this one, dear Oh, listeners. no, no, no. It, it, it's, it's a blast. We promise no interesting anecdotes well, from our lives. Well, I would say that going back and listening to older episodes, uh, a little rough. A little, yeah. little rough in the beginning there. What, mm-hmm. what can I say? There's just... Um, we got episode 50 coming up. You know what's funny is that um, I should just bring up at, at the top of the show here is uh, I was recently a guest on the Film Jive podcast to talk about Silver Linings Playbook, a movie which I really, really loved and uh, kind of uh, sad when people don't love it. <laughs> but um, it's funny that like I realized, uh, because Zach had brought up the fact that there um close to episode 50 as well but that was because he was including all their bonus episodes and i thought wait a second you're we're probably at episode 50 now if we included our bonus episodes as well but i guess to make it official um our our bonus episode or our uh, our official 50th episode will be in january well i i've always said we stand uh, we stand true for film nerds we're film nerds and we represent film nerds and there's nothing more nerdy than officially deciding what is and is not canon. So, <laughs> well, yeah. So I'm just so going off. Of don't worry, other... don't worry, dear listeners. Our bonus episodes do not count. Those are the novelizations. Those are the uh, alternate universe, extended universe, if, if you will. <laughs> um, but this, this, what you're listening to right now is the real stuff. It is, yeah. And it's, if you're listening, it's for too the, legit to yeah, quit. And if you're listening to the first time, number one. Congratulations on being the only person who uh, who doesn't listen to a podcast until they find out they're talking about Henry George Clouseau, which is the episode. <laughs> There's like some Henry George Clouseau fan who's like, well, I don't like this podcast, but I do like Henry George, so I'll go ahead and listen to it. Um, congratulations on that. And also, uh, go ahead and skip like our first six episodes or so. I'll yeah, say. you probably could if you wanted yeah. to. But... Jim, Jim was telling me about what was happening, because Jim, again, was going through... Has been going through sort of preparing a special. I think the Cameron Crow episode is actually pretty good. The first one is forty-five minutes long. We're all, we do a good job. Yeah, for a first episode. Well, I was really I like that one. Yeah. Oh boy, you 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 have come to the reminiscent podcast where we just talk about previous <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> oh no, we're just really looking forward to no. Dan, this January. episode is actually about Henry George Clouseau. Yes. Um, we're going to be talking about Le Diablique. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And, and wages of fear. Yeah, I'd like the way I say that. Like yeah. wages of fear. Well, it's got a proper English title, unlike Les Diablique, which uh, you think they would they would ever turn wages of fear into like a reality show? You know, like the <laughs> amazing have. the amazing race. Did you not know that Ice Road Truckers is an actual show that is oh, on fuck. Discovery Channel? That's right. Ice Road pretty Truckers close. is wages of is the wages <laughs> of fear reality show. That's nuts. Yeah. Oh man! Well, we've done some really some real quality rambling. No, I mean, again, I'm just uh, really stoked. This is more of kind of like a, an approach similar to what we did with the Joseph Losey episode because we've only seen. I mean, between the two of us, I, I managed to catch one of his documentaries, but we've only seen the two movies that we're going to be reviewing at length mm-hmm. for this director, and we're not as familiar with um, with his work. But uh, Robert has been kind enough to uh, watch a few more of his films and can fill us in further. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I watched a few, and I, I will probably get to those after the um, main two reviews. But I think you'll you'll find that there's um, he has a, quite the body of work, and he just didn't appear overnight with Wages of Fear. So there's going to be some uh, good homework to do in the future. 
Oh, Absolutely. definitely. Yeah, I'm going to definitely check out a couple more of his films for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm excited too. Um, so, yeah, with all that in mind, I think let's move on to uh, the official first segment of the podcast, which would be the What We Watched segment. And uh, we, <laughs> we do have a song. You don't have to do like a, you know, drum roll or anything. Unless you unless you really want. I was just so excited. I know. I'm excited too. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could watch a movie. I know not any movie is a movie that's good. Oh, gotta watch Amelie. Or maybe watch The Apple. Be a Justin Bureau. Or clean and sober. Ooh, pump up the volume. 20. Movies awaking oh, at the five. Laws as a real girl. Requiem for a dream. That's what I want to see. I want to see movies. I want to see movies. I want to watch films, films. I want to watch films, films, films. Robert, we love asking the guests what they've watched first. So um, go for it. What, what have you seen okay. recently that you really want to? Expand on, expound on. Well, I know Patrick talked about uh, Holy Motors a little bit on their last podcast, so I'll skip that. Um, last movie I watched is actually one to get uh, a little bit in the spirit of the Christmas season, plus it's a crime film. Uh, talk about Hammer's uh, Cash on Demand from 1962, hmm. uh, which is basically a, a variation on the Christmas Carol with a uh, uh, Peter Cushing as a uh, uptight uh, little tyrant of a bank manager who gets uh, um, a visit from uh, a bank inspector or alleged bank inspector played by Andre Morel and right in the middle of their conversation he gets a call to, uh, from his wife and child saying uh basically that we're kidnapped and do whatever this man says. So it's basically uh, from there it's a real time uh, heist movie from there as uh, Cushing tries to cope with uh, Morel having the upper hand on him and and tried to deal with the fact that he's always treated his uh, employees poorly and now needs the, their help to get out of the situation. I want to I huh. back up for a second. Um, one thing we have not said about Robert Reinecke is that um, I'm almost a little sad that this is his first episode because for as long as I can remember, ever since I was a little child, um, <laughs> he has been he has been lobbying for us to do a Terrence Fisher episode. Um, speaking of Hammer Horror, he's a huge Correct. Terrence Fisher fan. I take it he's a huge Hammer Horror fan. You say this is a Hammer film, but it sounds more like a heist, like thriller kind of. Yeah. Yeah, Hammer. I mean, they they made they're most famous for their horror films, but they made a a bunch of thrillers and they made a few war films and they made some comedies to go along with it. And huh. this is uh, one of their uh, 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 crime films. I guess I yeah, I never knew that. I thought they Neither only did, did horror. Yeah, it's got Peter Cushing in it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, Andre Morel and uh, Peter Cushing were right. uh, Watson and Holmes in uh, their Hound of the Baskervilles, so they just basically moved down this uh, street a few years later and uh, did a thriller together. Speaking of um, 
this the plot. Uh, speaking of your uh, work that you've been doing for for the past several months, um, or even a year uh, on Kurosawa, the plot almost sounds like the high and the low. A uh, little bit. I mean, this is more of a, a play, and it's it's all in real time. Oh, that's so cool. It's, so it's not uh, uh, like that. I mean, uh, high and low t- turns into police procedural about midway through, and this is basically uh, uh, a real-time heist film. And the part of the pleasure is seeing uh, Andre Morel get the upper hand on Cushing and basically bitch slap him around verbally and physically. <laughs> <laughs> I think one Which of my... That's not you see much from Cushing. He's usually the one with the upper hand. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking, what's ah? What was the British anthology film where, where he was telling everybody's fortune on the the train and, um, oh, I think oh. I know what you're talking about. Anyway, that's like he even got the upper hand of Christopher Lee in that one because Christopher Lee kept telling everybody that all the fortune telling was rubbish, and mm-hmm. then of course it turns out they've all been dead the whole time. That's a good one. That was one of the ones I saw at the massacre. I probably covered it uh, a couple episodes ago. Oh. Um, but um, it's funny because I remember one of my first experiences with uh, a movie being shot in real time was this kind of obscure film. I don't even know if it's available, but it's called Running Time. How appropriate! Uh, <laughs> it was uh, a film by Josh Becker, and they were—he was one of those guys kind of associated with uh, Scott Spiegel and Sam Raimi, and that's why I was like, "Oh, I know I'm going to watch it." I mean, it's got Bruce Campbell and. It's you know associated with that group of people, so I'm going to check it out. And it was like a really kind of crappy DVD, and uh, it was just shot in black and white. It almost looked like Clerks, and it was just again a real time heist kind of a movie. And it and in the midst of it all, he's trying to like rekindle with an old flame, and it's just it was okay. It was just like a cool gimmick kind of a movie, and like that's, time like Time to Kill. Yeah, and then there there was like Time Code. There's like a couple of time code. Yeah. Time code had two gimmicks. It was in real time and, and it was four way split screen. Four, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think 98 minutes or something with uh, Al Pacino came out more recently. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm, that was horrible. Was it? I never saw it, but yeah, yeah. So what is so what unfolds in real time? Is it is it an actual like them breaking into a building like heist heist kind of thing, or is it a lot of negotiation? Like cause you said, it's like a play. Yeah, I mean it's like a play. I um, there's a lot of it uh, of uh, Morel buying some time, so it doesn't look like oh I'm here and oh I'm coming out with these cases of suitcases, but he has to maneuver in his suitcases. He has to. Uh, get the second key to the vault and there's a little bit of uh just the mechanisms of the of a heist going on there um while they while he interacts with uh uh, uh Cushing and Morell is a very friendly gregarious guy and he kind of criticizes Cushing throughout uh for being an asshole to all his staff and not even knowing what <laughs> his employee having a relationship with his employees so they kind of have the the both of those playing out. As I said, it's, it's kind of a variation on a Christmas Carol um, as it goes along. <laughs> is it just the fact that he has sees the error of his miserly ways, or is there literally like three people who come in and one is no, telling? No, it, 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 it's 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 he sees a uh, error of his miserly ways, right? Uh, type thing. So I mean, it's a, it's a short little running film. I didn't think it's less than an hour and a half, but it's uh, oh, that's cool. uh, one, one of uh, Cushing's more atypical performances. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in like uh, movies that take place in Christmas that aren't necessarily like you know Christmas e or things that people watch around the holidays, like your It's a Wonderful Life or whatever. And uh, yeah. I mean, if it's in the backdrop or something, it's it's kind of fun to watch. It's why I like watching The Ref or something yeah. over, like around the the holidays and whatnot. Well, it's just I mean, it's something that Shane Black, the screenwriter, always takes takes advantage of. But mm-hmm. it's just it's a nice shorthand that you know. Like, you already can assume a lot about everybody's mood. Like, if you know who they are in a movie, then you know how they feel about Christmas time. Yeah. And it makes yeah. pe- it makes people who are depressed more depressed. And it makes people who are cheerful more cheerful. And it's just, it sort of, it's an intense thing. And there's a lot of sort of interesting stuff you can do in the background during Christmas time. Like, it's it definitely makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's a, the heist film, it's a, it's a nice reversal of what's going on at the time of year. I mean, it's like Die Hard in that respect. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's another great one to watch around the holidays. Are, uh, now, I know Hammer, they made their name with horror, um, but is would you say, like, that... Is there anything that you could use to connect Hammer horror to a Hammer heist film, or is it just... Um, I mean, it, it, it's all kind of rep cinema that they did at the time because they had the repertoire their, uh, cast and they, right. they would come up and then this is uh, a- an adaptation of a television play too oh. so it's like they did the Quatermass movies were on television and then they got made into movies and the Abominable Snowman was like that so that's kind of how they came up with it said, this work here let's film it and make some money off of it Was the dir- did it, the uh, director go on to do anything before or after? He did a lot of television. I think that his most famous film is The Crawling Eye. I don't know if you know that. Uh, hmm. 50, heard, I heard of it. I don't film. know it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's cool. It, it's, not the, it's not the best directed Hammer film by a long shot. I mean, it's just kind of television on film. But, I mean, it, it's, it moves along in a nice place and he gets good performances out of the actors. So. Well, I'm always up for a good heist movie myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they recently did a. Uh, there was an oral history of sneakers that yeah. was somewhere online. Did you, did you get to read that? I could Jim? do a whole podcast on sneakers. <laughs> I love sneakers. Me I was too. super skeptical when you were like, "Oh, Patrick, you're gonna love sneakers." And you sh- <laughs> you're, yeah, you showed me sneakers. I fucking love sneakers. Yeah, um, and you also loved boots and sandals mm-hmm. and a footwear in general. Of course. Yeah, I love Bootsy Collins. I love musicians <laughs> named after footwear. I'd. Like, that's oh how much God. I love sneakers. Yeah, you go into famous footwear and you start, start having orgasms left mm-hmm. and right. That's true. It's hey, true. Jim, what did you watch this week? Speaking of heists, um, there's this movie out that just came out called Killing Them Softly. Not to be confused, by the way, with Killing Me Softly, which stars Heather Graham exposing mm-hmm. her tits and fucking Joseph Fiennes for two hours, mm-hmm. which most people out there in the world probably know about at this point right so um yeah this was the only, only movie i got a chance to see within the last couple of weeks because i've been super busy i'm sorry real quick I, lo- I do love the way that you said exposing her tits because <laughs> the first half of that phrase implies that you're like morally against it but then you use the I know, word tits. the way i said it was like very judgmental <laughs> like yeah like the exposing first part is very tits. moral majority like yeah. describing the movie she was exposing her but then you said tits like you're a longshoreman like exposing her fucking tits yeah. i guess i'm just trying to be neutral okay <laughs> balance it out a little bit <laughs> all right go on Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> oh my god. Um yeah, so I I am a huge I think 
2007 was a mon- monumental year that we probably brought that up uh, on a couple of occasions. But I, I, st- I still maintain. I mean, it's really tough for me to choose between There Will Be Blood and this other film that uh, Andrew Dominic, who uh, directed Killing Them Softly, uh, he gave us last uh, back in 2007. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which I thought was a phenomenal piece of work. Um, so uh, most people I know have been highly anticipating his next film, wondering what he's going to do next. You know, you hear it stars Brad Pitt, uh, James Gandolfini, Richard Jenkins, Ray Liotta. You know, crime thriller has potential. Um and I heard the reviews were mixed coming out of all the film festivals. And it was interesting, though, I mean, recently just seeing that there were some raves and then there were some outright dismissals of the film. And usually when a film you know, like that comes out by a director I'm interested in, I want to make an effort to check it out. Um, but in the end, it's kind of a standard mob boss hitman movie that we've seen many times before. Um, it starts off with this double-crossing scam involving a heist that takes place during a poker game. And that's actually pretty well done and kind of tense and nail-biting. I mean, he shows a lot of restraint. There's not a lot of score. It's all about the ambiance, and the the sound design is really effective. And you're really in the moment within the heist. It's really uh, you know full of tension, and I thought it was really well executed. But then Brad Pitt comes into play, and of course there's a Johnny Cash musical cue, and I'm kind of like, hmm... That song's been overused in a lot of films. And what Johnny Cash song? The Man Comes Around. Oh. Like, oh. Yeah. I don't know. I just... I, I started to get a bad vibe from that moment on. I mean, even even Brad Pitt himself doesn't really do anything to... doesn't bring a whole lot to this character other than just kind of be stoic and uh, not really... Uh, brings that kind of internalized intensity in any way that I found to be interesting. He just plays a hitman who's just kind of like, I, I, I really don't want to kill people up close. I just want to kill them from a distance because otherwise it gets too messy. It gets You get too involved and too close, and they start begging and pleading for their lives. I just want to keep my distance. And, you know, it's, it's a very talky movie. Um... <laughs> You know, after the heist, there's just a lot of scenes interspersed with, you know, guys hanging out and drinking and talking a lot about the economy and uh, their plights and not very interesting dialogue. Uh, I think it kind of aspires to be sort of Tarantino-esque and just having, like, hitmen have, you know, everyday conversations about mundane things and whatnot, but it's not very engaging, it's not very funny, um, it's kind of nihilistic overall because in the end they all they hate themselves, they hate their jobs, they hate the country they live in, and they all bring it up ad nauseum. Uh, it's very heavy-handed in spelling out this idea that oh, murder is just another day at the office, and capitalism is killing us all slowly, and how that is represented in the movie is really kind of forced with like these images and audio splicing of Obama and McCain and George Bush giving these speeches about the financial crisis and the bailout and the, you know, I'm not going to give too much away, but there is a a moment involving Brad Pitt pointing to Obama on the television and, and Brad Pitt is sort of ranting and raving and concludes by like saying, America is not about community where people, 
you know, showcase empathy. We're only out looking for ourselves and our financial gain. And that's really Sounds like extremely didactic for a hitman it, movie. It is. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm paraphrasing. He doesn't right, right, literally right. say it like that, but it's it tries to equate the financial crisis as like this act of violence and mob men are pretty much on the same level. Apparently, like mob guys love to listen to AM talk radio hosts who love who are money experts because that's all they listen to in their cars. And like, really? I don't know. I mean, I understand what Andrew Dominic doesn't like America, apparently, from from this movie because it's all just like, look at America, look at how hypocritical we are. We're all about money, and uh, we're all killing each other. And there's and the characters spell that out kind of a lot. Uh, and I just it kind of rubbed me the wrong way, despite the fact that like he does bring amazing like stylistic flourishes and a great cinematography that you remember from assassination of Jesse James. Um, but just none of that sort of like grace and beauty and kind of like, um, I don't know. There's just something about the, how like the score and sort of how magical things are in assassination of Jesse James and how gritty it is. But there's really strong characterization in that movie that really makes it something special. And this one, I don't know. It's really stale. It's it felt like something that you would see in the post Tarantino era. That you know, it doesn't it doesn't stand out. Other than the political commentary. Well, yeah, the political commentary Um, is also just to me. It's dated too because it's. I mean, it 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 takes place in two thousand eight essentially. Oh really? Yeah. Oh Um, man. Refresh my memory. What did Andrew Dominic do before? Just Chopper. Chopper. Okay. Yeah. That That was was it. Which was pretty good. I have not seen that. Um, I'm surprised that like assassination of Jesse James is a lot of things, but it certainly doesn't seem political. No, um, I mean it has commentary about like you know celebrity sort of like putting you know. Just, I guess yeah, no, that's true. You know, there's there's that especially in the latter half of like you know the way we romanticize uh, you know idols and the dead and right. You know, there's uh, but uh, that movie kind of blew me out of the water because I wasn't expecting it and. I was never bored at, you know, it's like two hours and 45 minutes long and it was compelling the whole way through and every character was fully realized, even the supporting characters. And for me, I think this, I wonder if this movie got chopped up or something because there's... Is it, a, is it independent or is it a studio? I, th- I don't know. I think it might be, a, I think it might be studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to check into that, but it feels like, I mean, a lot of Ray Liotta's scenes were very short and there's this whole other character that we hear a lot about through dialogue named Dylan and he's played by Sam Shepard. I, and then he's, he's listed in the credits. I don't remember seeing him in the movie at all, which is weird. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I did, I did go up very, very, I rarely ever go to the bathroom during the middle of a movie, especially since it was only 90 minutes long. Um, but I did. So maybe the one time Sam Shepard showed up, uh, I was in the bathroom or something, but, uh, it's, it's crazy. I, um, I was monumentally disappointed by this movie, and yet there are certain things that I kind of liked about it uh, just because he's such a good visual director. There are just like moments where I'm like, oh, that was cool, or that could have been... That doesn't seem out of place in something like Drive, and uh, there's certainly a moment where he directly pays homage to David Lynch's uh, Blue Velvet and whatnot that I thought was kind of neat. But again, it was borderline derivative and not necessarily like, oh, I'm just paying tribute to this. It was literally like lifting it 
from from Blue Velvet. So I don't know. Uh, I I really hope that he makes a comeback with his next movie because uh, this one was kind of a letdown. And uh, I, I like the opening credits. It's I would say for people check out the opening credits at some point because <laughs> they're really well like they're they're kind of static and strange and they cut very abruptly and they they don't let the scenes breathe in between and it's just like it, the, each credit could be like a second or thirty seconds or ten seconds or it's just a really weird sort of jarring. Um, approach to credits that I'd never seen before. Uh, but again, he's sort of intercutting it with um, speeches from Obama. And that happens pretty much throughout the whole movie. And I just, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. I know what he's trying to say. Um, What's that? Just just this sort of nihilism is is kind of like, you know, I mean, it's pretty much, it's pretty much spelled out at the end of the movie for you. You know, that... Uh, <laughs> Again, like the whole idea that we're only out for ourselves and mm-hmm. we're only out for our own financial gain and we're not there to help the other guy and it's we're, we're our country is in the shitter and all that stuff. And I really, I don't feel that way personally. And so it could be a conflict of my own uh, worldview that sort of made me have like a, kind of an unpleasant response to the movie in general, but it's also the execution. I really think it's kind of a lazy film from a guy that I didn't think that would happen with. Because I, I, I like Chopper, but I really loved Assassination of Jesse James. So, yeah. Bummer. That's my review for Killing Them <laughs> Softly. Bummer. So, Patrick Rapol. Yes. What Jim Laskowski. What did you watch Recently, I want to take you on a journey. Is what I want to do. Um, <laughs> because here's here's what happens when you're a film nerd. When you're a film nerd, um, and it's late, but you kind of want to watch a movie, and you look at your vast library because instead of realizing that you live in an era where you can stream anything or get anything from Netflix, you don't actually have to own all these movies. You you hoard these DVDs like like I do. So what happened was I was at the library once and I saw they were selling a used copy of My Soul to Take. The uh, <laughs> I think I think 2011 uh, Wes Craven movie might be 2010. Um, and uh, it was only a dollar and I was and I heard that it was crazy, so like crazy stupid, so I bought it um, then and I only just watched it now. And it was amazing in the way that Dreamcatcher is an amazing <laughs> movie where, like, every five minutes, um, which is the, the good clip for every five minutes, there should be something that just baffles you. What the um, fuck moments. Like, that's what the room is. The room is, the room is, what makes the room amazing is every one minute something baffles you. <laughs> but, like... You know, like, I don't know, dear dear listeners, if we've talked about Dreamcatcher and how much I love Dreamcatcher, um, but if you have not seen Dreamcatcher, you can get it on Amazon used for about 13 cents. So you really need to check out Dreamcatcher. It's Everybody this, should own Dreamcatcher. Yeah, it's this amazing movie that makes no sense and that 
that there's just constant and but would make it's not late like there's a lot of bad movies that are just lazy and they're tedious to watch because there's nothing inventive about them and that's not Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher is constantly doing weird inventive things. They're just things that are dumb and don't serve the movie and that's what my soul to take is. Granted, my soul to take isn't as amazing as Dreamcatcher, but my soul to take. Um, number one, it takes place in high school, but all of the characters talk like they're eighth graders. Not eighth, not eighth graders, eight year olds. Like they all talk like they're like the little kids in it. <laughs> because the idea is that there is a serial killer in their town, and they were all born on the day that he disappeared. Oh god! And <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to remember now. It's like I've I've had post traumatic stress, and Patrick is making me relive this movie. So, so there are seven children in this tiny town that were all born. I mean, I you, really you want to find out what happened nine months before that night because it's crazy <laughs> that in this small town there are seven children who go to the same school who have the same birthday. Um, and are they, they like from the village of the damn children, or just uh, generic? Yeah, no, they should. They should, <laughs> I, it'd be great. No, they're just generic. One's a jock. One's a black kid who's blind. One's a like a stuck up Christian. One like so it, it's it, you know it's it's generic, but um and so then they started this tradition where they celebrate him disappearing like by like making a paper mache, uh paper paper mache figure of him that they fight and throw into the lake, and and but oh. but on this day oh. uh, a good sixteen years later, um. Uh, they start getting killed off one by one and you're trying to figure out who it is. And then there's this like, because, there's like one black character in the film other than the, other than the black kid who's blind, who doesn't have a character. he like, he has four lines of dialogue. Um, there's one. And she of course has her roots are back in Haiti and she goes, Oh, my grandparents, they'd call this voodoo. So like it introduces <laughs> this concept of that when the serial killer died or disappeared or whatever, his soul lived on and has now taken possession of one of these seven kids. So now we got to find out who it is. It's very similar to Nightmare on Elm Street where it's like the past coming upon these teenagers, but it's all similar to Scream in the game it plays where you're trying to guess which of the seven kids is the killer. And, when and there's they, a twist ending. The central, the central amazing thing about it is like the lead in People Under the Stairs who, <laughs> who is just not known as Fool, uh, the lead of this film is oh, this yeah. kid who is like touched basically like he he acts like he's six years old and he's like he's just wide-eyed and doesn't get what anyone does his name is bug and <laughs> and like he he has a thing where he just starts mimicking people and you go oh he must be the killer and but again what makes this movie great isn't the fact that the plot is dumb there's a tons of bad movies but the plot is dumb it's that like you don't know what the fuck anybody involved is going for um and it's really funny, and it's like there's a lot of lines that are just super quotable, um, and there's and none of it makes any sense. And it like it tries to establish this very complicated backstory in uh, the initial three minutes, and it almost feels like a Joseph Kahn like torque detention take on filmmaking, which I think is fascinating, given that Wes Craven must be like 65 at least by now. That he has, that he made this movie with this very ADD modern kind of sensibility at the mm-hmm. beginning, um, and 
then what got me, and this is what I want to sort of, I like, I like, see, this is what, this is what film nerds do is film nerds, they're, there's something that they want to know about. And then they start scratching that itch. And then before you know it, you're reviewing Kurosawa movies every month for where the long tail ends <laughs> or you're just like what what have you been doing this week I've been watching nothing but Godzilla movies like there's just something <laughs> that we want to find out where all this comes from so I listened to the commentary on my soul to take because I had to know what the fuck anyone was thinking when they were making it and was it Wes Craven himself it was Wes Craven and it was a bunch of the cast members and uh I love, like, personally, like, as a person, I love Wes Craven. I don't like a lot, most of his, I think, I think he's generally a kind of a bad filmmaker who, when he's inspired, he makes good movies, but when he is inspired, he just makes bad movies, and you can't count on him, like, he's not John Carpenter, you can't count on him to make quality. Um, No, he doesn't have the, the, the skills to do that uh, without, uh, inspiration to back him up right yeah like he has to read an article somewhere in a library <laughs> yeah patrick's <laughs> responsible for making me rethink west craven's new nightmare and i was like no yeah because but it's true because new, new nightmare has interesting ideas yeah. but is a very bad movie i think and it's actually not like it does because it most like it has those ideas but it mostly operates as a horror film and as a horror film it sucks mm-hmm but anyway, so Wes Craven is like this extremely thoughtful man, and because the way he got started filmmaking was he was a college professor whose students was like, hey, can we make films? And he goes, I guess. And then they started making <laughs> films together. Well, like, he was huge into psychology. So. Right, right. He was very big into psychology. But what's great is you hear him in this uh, commentary with all of these kids you know, who played these teenagers, and it's very clear that that's the dynamic he still has in 2011, the dynamic that he had in, you know, 1966. Right. Or whenever he made, uh, uh, you know. So then um, whenever he made, like, those films he made in college with his students, and where it's a very much a, I have these ideas, and you guys are going to help, and we're all going to chip in and be a team. And he's a very pleasant man, and I love listening to him talk. So I loved his commentary for this. I went back. I own... The first three Scream movies, because I have a un- unhealthy, um, I have an unhealthy appreciation of those films. I actually really like. I them love a lot. the first one. Oh no, the first one's great, but the yeah. third one, um, Parker Posey, is so <laughs> funny in well, the third movie. Well, she's always great. And that movie, that was, I mean, I think this happened partly in the second one too, but especially in the third film, mm-hmm. like that was one of those movies where they would get their script for what scenes they were doing on the day that they, they showed up. Oh yeah. Because yeah. Because they're yeah. constantly rewriting because that was went back when people thought, Oh, the internet is ruining all these endings. And instead of just saying, fuck it, like they, they, they didn't understand what kind of a force the internet was. And they didn't understand only nerds really like read the fact, read the twist endings on screen mm-hmm. two and three. Mm-hmm. So they would change it all the time, but um, so that that movie is basically just like Scooby Doo, where no scene is connected to each other, but it's just them um, all going jinkies and finding clues, and it's wonderful. I love Scream Three for that, um, and Scream Two is a lot of fun too. Scream Two has a really fun sequence um, where the the killer crashes the car, and then they have to the it's a cop car, so they have to climb in through the wire cage. Of the, oh, that yeah. divides the yeah. passenger in the back seat from the front seat, mm-hmm. and they then the killer's knocked out, and they have to climb over him, and it is so fucking tense, and it's like really genuinely exciting. I like. So again, this is where my mind goes. First, my mind goes, ah, fuck it, I'll put on this movie, and then my mind goes, I want to find out what the hell Wes Craven does. <laughs> like, what is his deal? And then my mind, after watching the 
Scream 2 and Scream 3, my mind was, I want to figure out exactly what the hell the deal was with horror movies in the late 90s and early 2000s. <laughs> because there was a definite tone hmm. to movies from, like, I think from Scream to Saw. There's a definite tone to, like, Hollywood horror films um, that I, uh, you know, I grew up with, so I find kind of interesting. But it's, so I watched those two. I watched, I ended up watching Halloween Resurrection, which is a horrible movie, but. Oh, is, is, is that, is that the one where they're in the house? Yeah, they're, they're, they're not the just cameras? in the house. They're in the house as part of a web, sh- in, web oh, series. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, as with Buster Rhymes. A, a live internet show, Dangertainment, oh, is God. the name of the company. And Buster Rhymes and Tyra Banks. And there are scenes where Buster Rhymes and Tyra Banks are together, and it's two people who don't know how to act. It's two non-actors. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> like, oh, man. So, uh, that's, so that's the journey I took. Over the past couple of weeks is, and now I want to watch the Final Destination movies Final as well. Destination you should. Uh, I want to watch. Um, I want to go back and watch like Fear dot com. No, you don't. Yeah, I do because no, I never saw it. I what are you going to do? Out. Start watching like D Snyder's? Hey, you're going to watch D Snyder's Strangeland? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, everyone told me. Everyone said my soul to take is bullshit. Um, one person, uh, shoot, Brian Collins who writes for Badass Digest. And there's a guy from Slash Film who thinks it's great, too. Yeah, okay. But one person I knew of, and the thousands of voices, not thousands, but a lot of voices I heard that said, oh, this is horrible. Don't waste your time. It's horrible. One person said, this movie is amazingly stupid. And I watched it, and my soul to take ended up being such a fun thing. Yeah. I need to go back and figure out what my fear.com, like what fear.com was. Do you remember Cry Wolf? Do you remember that? No. That was a movie I where, saw where that. it was a slasher no. movie where the killer was mm. instant messaging the people he was going to kill. <laughs> like that was there was a time in Hollywood where wow. executives were so unaware of the internet that they were just like fuck it, put internet in it. That's what they said. They just said they took scripts that people wrote them and go, "Yeah, but could you sprinkle some internet in there?" And then Pulse came along and destroyed <laughs> every destroyed them all. Yeah, Pulse Pulse actually did something with it, but I love I find it fascinating when Hollywood is like it's clearly run by old people who don't know what's going on, so they're just like, ah, do internets. <laughs> so that's where I am right now. Is uh, unfortunately, and you know, you want to know the real tragedy. The real tragedy isn't that I'm going to be watching Fear.com and Cry Wolf and fuck it. I'll probably go on YouTube and watch. Do you remember the Foxo Freaky Links? Which was oh basically it was basically the <laughs> it was basically the X Files, <laughs> but they're like running a website about. I forgot. I forgot to mention though, because Colin recommended it in the last episode. The that last episode of Erie, Indiana is fucking amazing. Is it? It's really worth. Even if you don't was, watch the yeah. whole sh- uh, the whole series, watch that. Even last if you episode. don't know who the characters right. are and everything, it's so cool. Okay, it is cool. like watching Gremlins two for a half hour. I mean, it's just really meta, really clever. You can tell Joe Dante just said, "Fuck it, this show is going down the crapper. I'm going to have a good time." It's um, a, it's really funny. That's nice. And yeah. then, uh, but the, I'm saying the real tragedy is now I'm reverting to, because the first horror movie I saw that wasn't on TV, wasn't censored, was Scream. Yeah. So for a while there, like movies like Scream and The Faculty, like those were the first horror movies I ever saw. Hmm. And despite the fact that I now, like my preferred horror film would be something from like the late 70s or the early 80s, and like in the slasher kind of genre, like I have a real fondness for that for that era of Hollywood horror. Yeah. Well, that's like with me in the gate. I mm-hmm. mean, that's exactly but what now, I grew up with. Now I'm regressing. 
like completely to that era. And I've actually, I just checked out from the library albums by AFI, My Chemical Romance, and The Used, and all these like... Patrick, what's happening? Yeah, I know. Like all these screamo bands that I was sort of into when I was like a sophomore in high school. Well, I mean, I don't think there's anything abnormal about reliving your youth. A lot of people do that. Yeah, but I mean... That's totally normal. But I mean, there's a lot of merit in Scream. There's not a lot of merit in The Used. Um, no, <laughs> they're not a great band. But uh, so yeah, that's where I am right now. Also, apropos of nothing, I've been thinking of buying a rat. So uh, if any <laughs> listeners, you got any, plenty of them in near my garbage cans. Yeah, no, I want to like a domesticized one. But if any listeners have any good ideas for rat names, things I could name my rat, please email us directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. I want to know what I should name my rat. Ratatouille. <laughs> even in, even Jim, even in Ratatouille. It was his name was not Ratatouille. I know. Yeah, but Carly Carly has suggested that it was I, Patton. Yeah, yeah. Carly uh, Remy. Uh, Carly suggested that I take the rat to the pizza place with me and that he can help me make pizzas. Oh, <laughs> I keep thinking under my hat. That'd be fun. Anyway, that's what I watched this week. That's uh, that was my journey. And I thought some. I people- think it's funny and it's kind of sad. I would have had more fun watching my soul to take with Patrick than sitting through killing them softly. Yeah, you should have. It's come too over. bad. It I'll made me really you. depressed. From now on, whenever I'm about to watch a bad movie, I'll text you and you yeah, can come over. That's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. At least for the next month while I don't have school. That'd be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, how about this director we want to talk about? Are you talking about Henry George Clouseau? Wages of fear. And he did lay Diabolique. His name is Henry. George Clouseau French director Great at making suspenseful thrillers A lethal morose with really dark humor Henry George Clouseau Groundbreaking filmmaker you gotta see his documentary, The Mystery of Picasso. Henry George Clouseau. While living in Germany, Henry George Clouseau saw the films of Murnau and Fritz Lang and Chaplin and was deeply influenced by their expressionist style. Clouseau was an early fan of cinema and desiring a career as a writer, he moved to Paris. He was later hired by producer Aldolf Osso to work in Berlin, writing French-language versions of German films. And after being fired from German studios due to his friendship with Jewish producers, Clouseau returned to France, where he spent years bedridden after contracting tuberculosis. Upon recovering, Clouseau found work in Nazi-occupied France as a screenwriter for the German-owned company Continental Films. At Continental, Clouseau wrote and directed films that were very popular. But his second film, Les Corbeaux, drew controversy over its harsh look at provincial France. And Clouseau was then fired from that production company at the time. And he was barred from the French government from filmmaking until about 1947. After a lot of support from filmmaking friends, he then 
was able to work on a number of projects over the years. But then, in 1950, him and his wife took a honeymoon trip to Brazil, which later served somewhat as inspiration for his next groundbreaking feature. Upon returning to France, he was offered a script written by an expatriate living in South America, and he had uh, basically wrote very much an autobiographical tale of man versus nature. And Clouseau found it very easy to imagine the setting of that script. He started writing this film, The Wages of Fear, with his brother. And little did he know at the time that he was about to create one of the most widely acclaimed motion pictures of all time. Um, all right, when you're in uh, art school and you're studying film, and you, <laughs> and you know there's this big canon of important art films that you need to see... Um, you need to prioritize because otherwise you're going to be watching a lot of uh, Godard. Ber- yeah, you're going to you're going to end up watching a lot of Bergman films that, while amazing, you're too young and stupid to know are amazing. Like you try to show an 18 year old Wild Strawberries, he's not going to get it. You know. So uh, when I was in uh, when I was in film school, there was one film that uh, I just heard the premise of. And as soon as I heard the premise, I knew that it was the foreign art film for me. And that was Wages of Fear. And here was the premise. A truck rides a dangerous road as it is full of canisters <laughs> of, nit- of uh, nitroglycerin. Uh, which, like, yeah, that's just the greatest premise for a thriller all of all I time. Need. That's all you need. And so Wages of Fear takes that. But what makes Wages of Fear amazing um, is, by the way, I don't have, I still don't have a computer, dear listeners, so I don't have the cast list in front of me, um, nor do I remember the names of the characters, but... Uh, well, two of them in particular we should know very mm-hmm. easily because Mario and Luigi! That's right. That's that's right. There One is... thing I, I picked up on, I was like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. Super Mario? Yeah. Mario is wonderfully played by Jonathan and they're Richmond. trying yeah they're trying to avoid being turned into a fireball <laughs> and they're jumping on a lot of mushrooms yeah no well yeah um uh so uh, Mar- Mario is the lead correct mm-hmm. I want to make sure I get this yeah, right yeah Eve's Montan here here's what makes Wages of Fear better than just an amazing thriller which if it started if it was only its premise if all it took place in the movie was people trying to transport this incredibly dangerous these incredibly dangerous goods over incredibly treacherous terrain that would be an amazing movie but what makes this movie a classic is that it devotes like a full 30 minutes to the backstory and to the mood and to the tone that and might be even longer mindset yeah it might even be longer before before anyone mentions being on a truck before nitroglycerin before any of this is even important um there you find out what is making these characters tick and it is yeah and it is it's so important for this movie it because what like i was expecting to be thrilled and this movie is super thrilling like uh, Henry George Clouseau is a master of just bringing the most possible tension out of the most clear-cut premises, mm-hmm. which is, for example, there are two there are two of these trucks. What happens if one can't go forward and the other is quickly nearing? 
but because of the terrain they're on, they can't slow down. It's right. like in in that sequence, the movie uh, outdoes the entirety of speed. You know, um, there's there's this very simple sequences of what if you have to get turned around, but you don't actually have enough room on this mountain road to get turned around. Yeah, heart like just just like gut wrenching. You know, white knuckle uh, entertainment, but. I really love these characters and getting to know these characters and the this sort of uh, Mario's this Frenchman who is sort of stranded um in South America because uh, he can't you know he he ended up there but he can't afford to get out and there's not enough work there to for him to save up to get out so he's stuck in this life and it very strategically and very cautiously and slowly Builds up what his life is like and how mm-hmm. boring it is. And there's, it's not just him. There's, an, there's him. There's a guy from from England. There's, uh, they, there's a couple other people. Uh, like it's all these people who just they end up there and they're stuck and there's nothing they can do to get out. There's no, you know, they can't afford plane tickets. They can't afford train tickets. They can't afford to move to the city. And that adds so much power and so much emotion and so much driving force. Um, to the to the actual Literally truck scenes, driving yeah. force. Yeah, yeah, but to to the actual truck scenes that suddenly a scene in which someone is going to absurd lengths to get their truck to just do a ninety degree turn on a mountain road um, suddenly becomes the most harrowing and important thing you've ever seen. Yeah, it's yeah. They, they make uh, why the fuck that we just saw some uh, nitroglycerin make sense to these characters. Mm-hmm. It's um I just saw it for the first time still processing it. It's uh an incredible character study because uh like Patrick mentioned, I was a little restless at first thinking, you know, I know this premise and here it is like at the 45 minute mark or whatever and uh, we haven't gotten to the setup of these they're going to take these trucks and uh it's they're going to go through treacherous territory and uh, I'm expecting like it to be like Double Dare or like an obstacle course, you know, or something like just a lot of crazy shit's going to happen once they get on these trucks and uh, have to transport all this nitroglycerin to um, put out the uh, fire at the oil rig and everything. And um, I realize, though, especially when you have a moment of uh, tension and character building and, and especially in the bar uh, between like uh, Luigi and Joe, that whole that's like a really great moment of tension outside of the the uh, yeah. driving of the truck. It's a, that's a that, I love that scene. It's a great microcosm of not only what will happen, but it, it, it very cleverly, um, very uh, cleverly gets uh, subverted later mm-hmm. on when you mm-hmm. find out what kind of person Joe, Joe actually is. is. I know that's what's crazy about it because you expect him to sort of be this. Uh, courageous, assertive guy, and it turns out he's the, the opposite of that in those um, completely uh, differential circumstances. And it's it's a harsh character study. It's unrelenting uh, in terms of how much like I, like the one thing I was thinking about between this and Diabolique is the idea of the suggestion of the direness. Of, of what's taking place like the suggestion of dire possibility is what kept me on edge yeah more so for wages of fear but uh, i was really struck by how brilliantly paced and how tense everything is from the hour onward 
and every sequence, I really don't know how it's gonna where it's gonna end up or how it's gonna. That go. is the that is that is the other important thing that the intro um, establishes, and I promise mm-hmm. I'll let you talk soon, Robert. <laughs> but um, that's the other thing that I really love about the intro is that um, like is it not only establishes the characters and it makes us care about these people, and which of course makes us more invested in these scenes, but also provides because I mean thrillers are very mechanical devices. Thrillers are very much how to wring maximum tension out of a situation and you right. you set up you set up this situation you set up these set of obstacles and you set up these challenges and and then you let it work itself out but you know i don't know of any thriller that has as much heart as this like even even something like jaws which i think is a very kind of a heartfelt uh thrilling movie i don't think it has quite as much heart and desperation as this and but what also the intro sets up is that Anything can happen. Yes. It is such a black, like, bleak existence that it paints that at any point you do believe that the main character will die. You go, yes, I believe Henry George Clouseau will go there. He will kill off Mario. He will kill off Luigi. He'll kill off anybody um, at any time. And there's – that's the – like, and just because of how bleak and how amoral he sets up the intro, um, Mm -hmm. he – Again, you're allowed to. He's able to wring the maximum amount of tension from the later scenes. It becomes a very existential film. Sometimes the, especially during the moment when the tobacco flies off the paper, that just happens, and you're just like yeah. dumbfounded uh, by how quick and sudden and shocking that is. But the universe is sometimes indifferent to the fate of humans. You just they just it happens, and that's. I think he brilliantly captures like the uh, what a lot of really great filmmakers can do is uh, allow us to confront our mortality uh, and also manage to make superior entertainment in the midst of that as well. Like, I mean, there's a lot of levity, there's a lot of humor, but there's great characters, there's in- insane moments of suspense, and there's great dialogue about fear that I don't think is heavy-handed at all. I think it adds to each character when they bring it up in some form or another. Um, I think this is a masterpiece, pretty much, except we'll get to the very end in a minute. But let's let's hear from Robert. I really want to hear what you have to say about this film. Well, I, I love this movie, too. Um, I mean, right from the start, you look at the uh, terrible town uh, they set up there. I mean, it's certainly not a Hayes Code movie there. I mean, you got nudity right off the, uh, from the first shot. You have a, uh, a kid stringing together some cockroaches to fight to the death. Um, which which Peck and Paul use later. On, uh, the Wild Bunch. Yep. Um, and you you got the... I mean, what, the only decent girl in town is a prostitute? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and even her... her, her uh, Henry Clouseau's uh, wife, he, he doesn't really treat... Uh, very flattering. I think the first time you see her, she's on all four scrubbing the floor, and you get a shot right down the front of her blouse. Yeah, very um, much a just object of desire. Seems to have some issues with her. I think uh, uh, Mario just scratches her on the head like he, she's a dog in that opening shot. I mean, they go to the well early that this is just a terrible place to be in. Yeah, uh, they, this terrible state of affairs, and I think the only exciting thing that happens. Um, is uh, Joe, who's apparently a gangster of some sort, arrives in town, and even he can't scare up anything to do. 
Um, and and I also tend to think that it's uh, that the fact that these are all former colonial powers that they seem to have been displaced by uh, the American corporation that's running things around there, and they 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 can't figure out how what they're supposed to do with, uh, in this uh, uh, post colonial atmosphere. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I also read that he had a a, a a brush with mortality himself, and he wound up um, he wound up in an institution for a while apparently, because uh, I don't know if he I think it might have been smallpox or something. He got a TB. Re- oh TB TB that's right. Yeah, and uh, he he sort of attributed like his worldview um, to his experiences in this institution, seeing like humanity at its darkest and most disturbed and at the same time i read like an interview with between him and paul schrader and he said that like his biggest directorial influence was chaplin which really surprised me and yet at the same time i like i said i think that despite his i would i wouldn't say he's kind of nihilistic about things he's more or less i would um maybe <laughs> I mean, I guess the very end, I, I, it's weird how, like, I mean, we could talk about it, but it's still, if it didn't feel necessary to end it on that note, but I, I almost attribute it again to, like, that's got to be his sense of humor. I he wants to end it now. Here, here is why I, I have trouble calling him nihilistic, though I certainly see where you would be coming from. One of the things that makes this movie so moving is that he really cares about these characters. These characters aren't like just put through the gauntlet because of a wicked It's not like Lars like, von Trier. Right. Like he really like the um the sort of very Aryan uh guy who um who seems to not be breaking a sweat about any of this crazy, dangerous kind of occupation he casually talks about when he was a prisoner of war and he had to mm-hmm. work in a mine, a salt mine, I believe. And, and that's just, that's what life is for him. And I think there's a lot of respect for him. I think there's a lot of respect for the friendship that, uh, Joe and Mario develop. I think there's a lot of, yeah, that relationship sort of, is really moving. I think there's a lot of, uh, emotion he invests in, in, uh, Luigi and the fact that Luigi has to do this because unlike the others who are just, feeling restless and they can't take it anymore. Luigi literally has no more time left. He's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, so at this point, like this opportunity to drive this dangerous truck, it, which is his only escape, that's not only just his only escape from the town, that's his only chance to ever yeah. do anything else with his life. Like It's a heroic note. There's to a on. lot of emotions uh, going on that I don't think that uh, Cluzo mocks necessarily. No, I mean, I guess I can see the the nihilistic uh, um, yeah. kind of facets here and there, especially when towards the end, you know, they're talking about what's behind the fence, and you're sort of reminiscing about the the town that they both uh, lived in at one point, and they're just recalling memories and stuff. And I thought that was a really moving moment. And then he's like, "What's behind the fence? There's nothing, and there's nothing, and like just uh, the idea." I guess he's trying to say that there's nothing. There's this sense of nothingness after yeah, death, and there's nothingness in life. I can see that sort of like, like maybe he's adopting sort of like a Nietzsche kind of viewpoint on, on everything in general. But at the same time, I think I th- I still think he he despite these characters sort of uh, being 
unlikable, especially Mario. I mean, you have your protagonist, the main guy you're focusing on, is kind of being an asshole uh, throughout the entire movie to the point where he's running over his only friend. Um, It's still, like, you still sense that he genuinely feels bad and and he cares about Joe when he's dying. At least that's my impression. I mean, maybe he's just doing that in the moment, but uh, that's where I feel like there's a sense of humanity from this director. Oh, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think he likes characters, and I, there's all sorts of moments when they bond. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. amused that after they take care of the boulder in the road, they decide to piss in the crater. Yeah. <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> I mean, they all become little boys at, at one point in the film, and I think that's that's part of it, and I, I think that's... Mm-hmm. Um, um, something that he's, he's trying to get at. I mean, if there is nothing, that doesn't mean you can't live. It's, cer- uh, it's certainly sure something he, he, he plays with l- later on in Les Diabliques as far as the way he contrasts the children with the adults in that film. That that sort yeah. of... Uh, um, he sort of sees char- like a lot of adults are reduced to these like childlike demonstrations uh-huh. of emotion at times, especially when they're faced in these situations. They sort of experience regression. And they can't help it. It's like they don't know how to respond to these things because they have no experience with them. I can see the ending as being nihilistic. And the very end of the film in which Mario driving back no with, with no explosives in his truck, um, just gleeful, just full of joy from having completed and having survived and being able to escape and having, uh, having lived on. Uh, he is too gleeful and he doesn't pay attention. He off the road. He drives off a cliff and it is, I really, I want to ask you guys about that ending because I hate this. Like, I think it's ironic and pat. It betrays the rest only, of the movie? Not necessarily betrays the rest of the movie, but it, it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It, it doesn't seem to expand on any ideas. It's just, I, th- I think it's ironic and yeah. pat um, for the only purpose of being ironic. Ironic is definitely the word I thought of as a, yeah. as I saw that. I, but again, I was thinking his sense of hu- his sense um, of humor is um, that more. Although I think it's a, it's a well shot sequence. And no. I'm always amused when you see a famous music piece used in a film you're not associating with, with the Blue Danube uh, going out <laughs> at the same time. But yeah, it, that, that, it's unnecessary. If they had cut it uh, after he had passed out at the fire, I think everyone would have been happy with the ending. Yeah. yeah, that would have been a really great note to end on. Um, I just think that uh, is it his morbid sense of humor and like him wanting it to end on an ironic note that got the best of him. I guess you know. I mean, I, but I think he's making a commentary on, yeah. that everybody's going to get their comeuppance later on in Les Diablique. It also ends on kind of an ironic note that doesn't really add much to the film except to sort of be a final prod at the audience like ooh but what about this maybe she's still alive yeah or yeah but um <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean i kind of i don't know it, i i wouldn't say it upsets me that it ends on that note in, in that case i mean it's kind of but i kind of laugh I at, wanna, laugh off laugh it off <laughs> yeah no it, de- it definitely doesn't it de- definitely doesn't make wages of fear anything less than a masterpiece but uh, I did. I did hate the fact that ninety nine percent of the film is this fucking like brilliant movie, and then there's just one percent at the end. It's just oh god. Why I don't think do, I've ever felt so much sweat since like Do the Right Thing. Oh yeah, like it's so sweaty and well, oppressive. That's, that's what Clouseau does so amazingly. Like 
There are scenes that are literally just people like, you know, if you want to abstract it, it's just someone pouring a liquid into a hole as slowly as possible. Like in the wrong hands, this could have been, it could have been. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Oh man. I'm sorry. Um, No, in the wrong hands, like in the wrong hands, these very long, very quiet scenes in which just the most detailed, uh, you know, you see exactly what they're doing with the gas and the brake. And, and as far as driving, you see exactly what they're doing with, you know, you see the speedometer, you see exactly what they're doing, pouring one liquid from one container into another and then pouring it very slowly down a rope. Mm-hmm. And then like all these things would be so boring, but he is able, what he does is he starts hyper-focusing. And especially that scene where um, right before they light the fuse, there's just the, you see the sweat and you just you see close up <sighs> to sweat and you see scr- like a man scratching himself and you see their lips and their ears and just like, you know just how tense that moment is because he just dials it way down. Um, and that's just, and it's so masterful. And again, like, and, and he even... The fact that there, there's one sequence which he actually gets away with doing the same thing twice, which is, or not the same thing, but uh, what, um, like we were talking about on the mountain road, there's a part where they have to sort of back up and turn around um, on this very wicked, uh, rickety kind of wooden uh, platform platform that is built on the edge of a clip. I'm sorry, what'd you say? Cantilever. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, that's, that's the name. But, um, and they have to back up, and the first time you see it, it's it is white knuckle, and it's and it's intense as all hell, and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And as they leave, they break it. So then again, he's he even subverts uh, his own sequence by trying. Suddenly, you have people who have to deal with not only what the last sequence had to deal with, but they have to deal with these new challenges. And it's and again, like. As far as a mechanical device, which is what a thriller is, like it is one of the most well-constructed mechanical devices yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, and then the fact that you really care about these characters, that you are invested in these people, the fact that like the guy who plays Mario and Joe, the guys who play Mario and Joe, they're so funny. Mm-hmm. They're like you really do get to like them over the long period of time you see them stuck in this sort of wicked little town. Um, like, and the fact that you care about them so much just adds. It just adds a heart into the that machine, and that's and it makes it. A you want to see them succeed, effective. yeah. And but, it makes horrific scenes like, um, oh, the like scene where Jim the thing is stuck and well, he has to run him over. Jim mentioned the uh, again. He could play. He could have played um, one of the trucks involved. Again, spoilers. One of the trucks involved explodes. He could have played it for tension. He could have played it as. You write, you make a ter- you construct a terrific scene, and the climax of the scene is this great explosion. But again, showing the humanity no, it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and not only does it come out of nowhere, showing the humanity of the film, it comes yeah. as a sad note. You see them a man a man is celebrating um, the fact that they're almost there, and he has by rolling his cigarette, and he has tobacco in a cigarette, and he's he's praising France and and mm-hmm. France's fine tobacco and. You get the idea. This is a victory cigarette. He's having the smoke because they have conquered this thing. And the fact, and before he sees the flash, before he hears the explosion, the wind, the 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 force from the explosion knocks the tobacco off the. And again, it's about dialing it way down to these details. And it instead of instead of playing it as exciting, instead of playing it as shocking, 
it's sad. It's specifically he's playing the, the the death of these two people is very sad. And then, but he doesn't miss a beat. Like they didn't blow up in a road that now they just have to drive around. Or it yeah. doesn't. It, it's not followed by a scene where they pick up the debris slowly and then continue. It's followed by a scene where now there's a time limit because there's a lake forming of oil because they broke an oil. They broke part of the oil pipeline. And what are they going to do? How are they going to get this oil? They can't stop and think and discuss it because the oil's filling up. And like, it's such. It's so well constructed. It's unbelievable. And yet. Like the fact that the one man is in is in the lake and the other man has to drive through and uh, and uh, Joe is not able to get out of the way and Mario drives over his leg and oh. and I want to say like uh. at this point like um, I'm so happy this is a, I have not seen Sorcerer which is William Friedkin uh, William Friedkin's remake of this film I've but, heard nothing but great things about yeah it. I I want to see Sorcerer I do but too I cannot imagine if this scene is. If this scene is done in that film as well, I can't imagine it's as effective because a black and white movie, a, a lake of oil mm-hmm. just looks like doom. Yeah. There's no there's no hints of brown. There's no hints of anything that makes it seem like anything else than absolute darkness. And like and it's such a powerful the way that he's completely submerged in the oil. I and know. And it's so it's like thinking he's going to drown. It's and I don't frightening know and visceral, and you just imagine the stench of the oil and the fact that he's gagging, and that's why he dies later on because of the the fumes of it. Like, yeah, it is so hellish, and it is like a scene from hell. It, it's, <laughs> it is a scene straight out of Dante's Inferno, like just this horrible image, and um, the fact that it's in black and white makes that scene play out even more horrific. Um, and again, yeah, and they probably get away with lingering on the mangled leg just a little bit more because there is no blood there. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they get. A, I mean, and if, and again, uh, I have not. I, this is something I want to go back and watch. But it, it feel, I feel like between this and Le, uh, Le Diablique, like there's a lot that it's. Oh, that's right. Like like you mentioned earlier, Robert. There's no haze code. Like they're really. Getting away with a lot. There's some nudity in this film, and there's a lot of more upfront violence. Uh, we'll talk about Lady Oblique. A lot of misogyny. In a little, yeah, <laughs> misogyny, but and explicit sexual dialogue and yeah. even swearing. And but like we'll talk about later. There's a lot of violence in that that I found very shocking. And it's and because when you're a, when you're a film fan, you watch a lot of films. Eventually, you learn how to plug into a mindset mm-hmm. where you go, okay, this movie's from 1934. This is the kind of thing 1934 movies are. And then the fact that, like, the fact that if there was a movie that had the creature from the Black Lagoon as its monster that came out nowadays, everyone yeah. would laugh because it would look horrible. But you can watch the creature from the Black Lagoon in 2012 and still be creeped out and still be mesmerized by it because you're looking at it with, from a pair of 1950s right. eyes. But I was looking at it as only mostly knowing American cinema from that time and again I'm it's constantly shocked and surprised and my expectations subverted we had the same almost almost the same reaction to the servant because it came out in the early 60s yeah and, and we it, were surprised at how subversive it was subversive and just black and bleak and horrible yeah right. so I, I certainly it's certainly a motivation for me to go out and see more Clouseau because he's he certainly seems unafraid of making a dark film um, yeah, I'll, I'll 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 skip ahead, but uh, uh, if you see Le Corbeau, which is one of his first films, the uh, uh, first shot of the movie is a doctor coming out from uh, 
failing to deliver a baby and they linger on his bloody hands like he just performed an abortion. So he's been doing that a long time yeah. before uh, Wages of Fear. It's, it's, it's kind of incredible. I mean, I felt the same way when I saw Eyes Without a Face for the first time. And, I was, and there's that long surgery scene where you see someone peeling skin off someone's face. You're like, oh my mm-hmm. god, that's, this is the 50s. This shouldn't be like this. And it's and no, they should all be going to the sock hop. There, yeah, there's no, there's no, like, there's, there's probably no violence in a 2012 movie that can shock me, but there's violence in a uh, 1950s movie that can shock me, an early 1950s. Or at least surprise you. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, yeah, that's, you know, shock. Um, but, so that's, I really love Wages of Fear. Um, before, I always mentioned that, um, that are, I don't know always, but uh, I saw less than zero like a year ago for the first time, and I was and I realized that oh <laughs> the ending of less than zero I always said oh the ending of less than zero that's ripping off Midnight Cowboy and now I know no it's actually Midnight Cowboy is ripping off the ending of Wages of Fear where oh. it's like we're almost there we're gonna make it we're okay and then mm. no nope, his friend dies before he gets there um, yeah another way Wages of Fear very influential and of course you can look at something like dos boot where you get so involved and so invested in the mission and then you get to the ending and it just cuts everything into perspective and you realize oh like they Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. what they were saving wasn't even something that that you as a viewer care about you don't care about the well-being of the oil company and what all of that they just went through for was the oil company like i mean i i imagine in 2012 it has a lot even more resonance uh, than it did back in the fifties, as far as as far as what people associate with oil and and the, and oil companies, and you know what what damage has been done to the world and to people um, in the name of them. Uh, but yeah, I, I was thinking of Treasure of Sierra Madre. Oh yeah, when I was watching yeah. this movie, and uh, that's uh, and, that, uh, that's I, one of my I, favorites. I was, add on to Houston, I was thinking of uh, African Queen as well because you kind of see both of them uh, working oh, yeah. their way into it. Yeah, I haven't seen African Queen in a long time. I yeah, I just man. So clearly, clearly an, a very name. very influential film. Absolutely. Um, as in, on top of just being dynamite, and it's definitely no a film intended. that if you're the kind of person who goes, look, I like movies, but I like entertainment. I'm not a, I'm not into art. Go ahead, watch Wages of Fear. I promise, this French film <laughs> from the '50s will not bore you. No, God, no. Yeah. Even at two and a half I hours. Can, yeah, I can I can uh, uh, say from experience. I took my wife to it when we were dating. We saw it on the big screen, and oh. I don't think I ever gripped her hand as tightly as I did during uh, Wages of Fear. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> yeah. Wages of Fear is a great date movie. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> Skip all the horror I mean, it's, movies. It's still a very modern film in in all sorts of ways. I mean, even even the construction of the set pieces, you can see uh, modern films. Uh, try to duplicate but never quite pull off as well as it does yeah absolutely um and that is yeah that's the other thing that because of the, because the pace of films have sped up over the years a lot of people mm-hmm. will go oh i don't and it's harder for me to watch older films because they're slower or whatever this is other than the opening which um which obviously pays off later on like this is all of the shocks and all of the thrills and all of the tenseness of this film they still work just as well in 2012 so and don't worry, the, the, the build-up, the first 45 minutes or so, it's all for a reason. And it's great, strong characterization, and it's, it's certainly worth your invested time. Absolutely. It's an amazing film. Oh, 
Wages of Fear is so great. Let's so. move on. Because mm-hmm. uh, Le Diabolique is a film that uh, I hadn't seen. I, I, you know, Patrick had mentioned to me, because I, I texted him after I watched it, and I went, holy shit, that ending. And he kind of knew about the infamous Yeah, to, to me bathtub. it was as famous as Psycho. Like, I always knew the ending. Of, before I ever knew what Le Diabolique was about, I knew that what the ending shocking image was. Yeah, and so the um, it's funny during the closing credits it even ends with uh, you know a warning to viewers not to blab about the ending. <laughs> so um, in case you're um, as uh, ignorant as me or and unaware sensitive, and sensitive to spoilers and sensitive to spoilers, maybe uh, you know if you really don't want to know anything about this movie in particular, especially the very end, mm-hmm. I would. Uh, Skip ahead. But before you skip ahead, real quick, I do want to say, just so you can get a synopsis, I'm not a big fan of this movie. Oh, yeah. It's well, true. from the op- from the opening shot, I, I don't know. It's you know you got a little scummy pool, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's kind of an apt metaphor for this whole consumption of human nature, this murky, overcast, drab world that these characters are living it's in. It's exceedingly well shot. Yes, for sure, it definitely is. It's a uh, it's a movie that. You know, its effect depends, again, crucially on the surprise element and the kind of, like, detonation of exquisitely timed surprises to the audience. Um, And I wouldn't say, like, these shocks to the system made me leap out of my seat, like all these revelations that happened throughout the movie. I would just think that the air of mystery is what kept me um, interested. Not necessarily, like, glued to the uh, you know seat and like on the edge of my seat wondering well what the fuck is going on it's more of just like hmm that's odd I'm kind of curious to learn about what the deal is uh, with this missing body so it's basically just a a very simple premise of two women conspire together to kill uh, one of the uh, women's husbands because he's a, a, com- a complete vicious, dick. Uh, they they're both teach they're <laughs> yeah, both teachers yeah. of a school and yeah. he is a vicious headmaster. Vicious a, a, as as demonstrated in early scenes and they it's so high concept that Clouseau actually um, outbid Hitchcock for the rights for the story. Yeah, um, this was going to be a Hitchcock film um, if Clouseau didn't get his hands on it and it feels like that. Um, you do have to have a lot of patience with this film, I think, and here. Uh, I just, I, I would say that I did have moments of restlessness, but I was still invested in wondering what the deal was with his body. And I, that's all it took. I for do want to say because I knew ahead of time um, what the what the shocking, sh- like the same way that everyone knows, you know, people who don't care about film, they know the the shot of the shadowy figure throwing open the shower curtain and stabbing Janet Le- Janet Leigh and Psycho. Um, the same way, I knew the shot, um, here comes the spoilers, of of the headmaster who has been missing, rising from the bathtub, the, mm-hmm. his corpse, at, now alive. Um, I didn't even actually know the plot of the movie, but I knew that shot. So that could have led to me being less less forgiving of the film, but I knew, like I said, I knew, the, I knew that part of Psycho, but I still love Psycho, and watching it I still find every scene that leads up to that shocking moment very powerful and I find all the scenes after it my problem with Le Diablique is it is basically an EC comic you know a a sort of Tales from the Crypt kind of story but it takes two uh, nearly two hours to tell and it is 
it's like Rod Serling would have wrapped it up in 30 minutes. It wouldn't have been a problem. <laughs> it's that kind of very, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing you would hear in an old-fashioned horror like radio play. Um, it's It's very high concept and it has a very frank twist ending where he throws little things at you though where there's been a double cross but i like all the stuff leading up to it i found pretty dull um my main problem is i don't like the characters in it um the main character uh the main there are two main characters one is sort of a more harsh uh blonde-haired woman uh what's the name of this actress uh simone signore there you go. Um, and she's uh, she's all right. And then there's the the woman, his wife, uh, Henry George Clouseau's wife, who was the only woman of note in uh, Wages of Fear. And I think she's fine in Wages of Fear because, unfortunately, she's just kind of a sex object in Wages of Fear. And she's a pretty woman. So she, like, as a sex object, it, like, yeah, she works. Um, but I thought I she was of, fine in this. Nothing spectacular. I thought... I I thought so much of my investment in the movie hinged on whether or not I felt her dread, and mm-hmm. I didn't really. Uh, and there's a like she has a weak heart, and she's you know, and she's very timid, and she's been sort of pushed along by the more harsh, uh, you know, uh, by the more harsh teacher into this. And so you're supposed to sort of be like she's the audience sort of sympathization identification character. She's sort of the one you sympathize with her, and I just didn't think she did a very I don't think she gave a really good performance, and it was uh, kind of hard for me to care about either of these characters because the other one is so harsh and so nasty that you know she's not you like if she gets caught, I'm not going to go. Oh no, I hope she doesn't get caught. But and the other one, I don't think gave a good performance, and it's just it's not a lot of shocks. I think most of this film's reputation comes from the last ten minutes, which are a very, which is a very effective series of scenes. Oh, definitely. And which, yeah. which, which is really, which are really beautifully shot and are really, you know, all about sort of shadows and suggestion and this dark and, corridors and all that stuff. That's really beautifully. Other done. than that, it's a very standard kind of story where one person, where two people commit a crime and one person is cracking and the other person is trying to stop them from cracking. It's this thing we've seen a million times before. It's rope. Well, it's maybe a the, simple, the, it's a simple plan. It's there's yeah. a million movies like this. Um, and even back then it was a pretty standard plot of, of, uh, two criminals, one more confident than the hmm. other. Um, I mean, yeah, wages. I, of- I, 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 I want to bring up though. I, I think the fact that one's the mistress and one's the wife and they team up is a nice little twist that we don't really see that off at least from that era yeah I'll, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make me it's 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 something I can note but it doesn't necessarily make any any one scene more interesting um, it makes maybe I guess the film as a whole you can say more interesting because it's so frank about the fact like about the sex of it um, but I don't necessarily I, I, I kind of wonder if it's it's maybe it's my uh, um, uh point of view of this is might be played slightly for comedy for the French people because they're I think one of the things that uh, uh, sets uh, off as a terrible thing is that uh, the headmaster serves cheap wine and bad fish and uh, <laughs> the, they the wife and mistress team up and there's these kind of it's kind of a, a terribly run school so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if uh, from our point of view we're taking it much more seriously than uh, uh, the French did at the time. It's more of a farce, um, as far as but his weird sense of humor I'm, again. 
I would say that is that is funny, and I do like the fact that um, throughout he keeps undercutting the tension. Um, and I would say probably the parts of the movie I like the most are when he undercuts the tension with these <laughs> very rambunctious children. Yeah. Um, I yeah. want to go ahead and say I've been I, I made a couple tweets about this today, but there's not there's like very few things I love more than little French boys in like black and white movies. Like <laughs> I think. Like, you know, you look at the 400 Blows, you look at Lee Diablique, you look at all these kind of old movies where there are young boys. They always seem to have things figured out. They're very, they're very <laughs> preternaturally wise and very kind of dirty. They make dirty jokes and stuff. I really love. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I like the bit where the, the one uh, kid's sells the people to see his sister naked for a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, I mean, even in that way, it still feels like an EC comic. But And while those scenes are great, and if I think if the, if the sort of the premise of the film was, under, was to undercut it, I think that'd be one thing. But I do think that it's mostly played straight, um, the scenes that are mostly shocking. And, you know, like I said about earlier about Frank violence, like... Um, I never expected in a movie this old to actually see the man drowning. I mean, a very clear way that Hitchcock or anyone working in the American studio system would have shot it would be you see the person drowning the man up, you know, from their elbows up and you see Mm -hmm. the, you know, you see their arms struggling, but you don't actually see the fact that bubbles stopped coming from his mouth. Um, That's right. And because she has a weak heart and she can't handle it. She has to leave the room, mm-hmm. so we don't actually see him. Yeah, like that ended up being like very clever the way it was done. But um, that violence is very frank, and but like say like scenes where they're say moving the trunk out, I didn't really, I, it wasn't necessarily tensed for me, and because they're moving the trunk out, and the other tenants of this building are helping them, and at one point the latch comes open, and he's asking for string, and. It's oh no, are they going to discover the body? Like I don't, I, they weren't very tense for me because they seem to be mostly played for comedy, which I maybe may again may support your sort of view of the film, Robert, but doesn't necessarily make it better because I didn't find those scenes particularly funny. Um, again, there's long. No. It's a long movie for what it is for for the story that it's telling. Um, I think that like if it was a you know a ninety minute movie. Um, of this premise or even you know shorter I think I could swallow it more but so much of it just feels like it's killing time um, before it gets to the ending yeah I, I, I would I, I understand where you're coming from on that um, one of the things I, I do like in the setup though they kind of take their time and you see these dissolves and these fades to black and I think they're trying to set up a, a dreamlike imagery so that when you get towards the end and it Goes straight into a horror film. It doesn't uh, uh, feel out of place with the for the grimy uh, crime thriller that comes before it. So I think that's part of the strategy that they're uh, yeah. I, I was thinking it was becoming a supernatural film, especially when you see the photo developed. Yeah, that was a nice moment where they you see the face because the face doesn't necessarily feel like you, they they only show you the photo very briefly, so yeah. you can't really get a good look and determine if that's a man in the window or if that's the image of a man appearing right. over the window. I yeah. think he's good at just like throwing little things, you know, like that. Either you know, with the boy with the slingshot. Uh-huh. Or, you know, they find a, a body that may belong to him in the morgue. Like, there are things sporadically thrown in throughout the movie that perk my attention up and go, oh, well, what's 
what's the deal with that? What's the deal with this? And um, I will I will agree with you though that the acting is not nearly as strong as in something like Wages of Fear, uh, and. I don't get as invested in these characters, that's for sure. But I think sometimes when you just have a, a, a an interesting premise with an air of mystery to it, it's enough to sell me, at least get me interested in... It didn't feel long to me. I mean, I certainly had moments of like, all right, well, let's move on from this uh, you know, sequence or whatever. But I think throughout, just like wondering, well, what are we going to find out? What's what you know? What's What exactly is going to happen here is it going to become you know a, a typical sort of uh um scam slash con game or is it going to become something supernatural and horrific because there are people who attribute this movie to um the horror genre and you know it's 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 people like saying oh this is the predecessor to psycho it, uh, the ending almost felt like uh i don't know if you've jim you've seen mark of the vampire I don't think but I that have. was one of the films I talked about that I saw at the massacre, um, and that is a film in which um, it mostly plays out as if it mostly plays out as almost a remake of Dracula. <laughs> but then at the very end, it's revealed that everyone involved is ac- are actors, and they're trying to get someone to admit to a crime, and it oh, turns okay. out there's no, nothing supernatural going on. And that's sort of how I felt at the end was was they get to have their cake and eat it too, um, kind of like April Fool's Day. I get what you're what you're saying there. Um, when I was looking at it visually, one of the things that struck me that it was like Bournal's uh, 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 Nosferatu at times. You got the shadow reaching yeah. across the room, and uh, when the body rises out of the tub, which kind of is played as a undead rising, yes, uh, he stands up and he forms a kind of uh, flax uh, body shape that I, I looks almost exactly like the same posture that you can see in some shots of. Uh, Count Urlock from uh, uh, Nosferatu. I, I think definitely uh, Murnau was an influence on that uh, scene. I think that's partly playing, uh, paying Cluzo paying tribute to that. Yeah. I, my problem is that made uh, me go than, holy shit. Other than very <laughs> specific scenes, like such as the 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 face appearing in the photograph, um, there's not a lot of atmosphere. There's actually. Like you know me, I'm not I'm not huge on uh, on music uh, in like in, in on sort of uh, omniscient kind of music drowning out every scene of a mm-hmm. film. But mm-hmm. there's barely any score at all in this movie. No, I know. Um, no. It's it it. There's not a lot of sort of dreamlike imagery. I would say, um, even you know uh, the scene where she sees her dead husband. They could have done a lot with that with the setting of a morgue, but they seem to try to you know he he. It's pretty Clu- straightforward. Clu- yeah, Clouseau tries to seem to portray it very straightforward, and that whole scene, which again, this movie, and and I, I will I will again cop to the fact that because I know the final image of the film, perhaps I'm a little more restless than someone who doesn't know what's going on. But like to me, the movie seems like a series of diversions, um, and that whole uh, morgue scene, almost the only thing that keeps come out of it is this private detective. Uh, Played by Columbo. Seems, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just one more thing. Yeah, the French Columbo. Yeah. Who yeah. I I like his performance too. It's not a it's not a movie I hate, but it was definitely after The Wages of Fear, a movie I was disappointed by. And I'm just sitting I mean, here watching one, you. I, I didn't point out that the inspector you like was the guy that played Joe in uh, yeah. Wages of Fear. Oh really? Yeah, same dude. Okay, I'm yeah, I'm bad with Charles faces. 
would have never would have never recognized that. Uh, that's nice. So Clouseau seems to have a repertory sort of cast as well. Yeah, I think uh, you're you're right in that it doesn't create that sort of uh, you know dreamlike atmosphere, which is I surprising. Mean, I mean, all of the plot threads uh, they follow the are are logistical of who sure, is sure, who sure. who saw us doing it and who is messing with us. It's not supernatural. It's not trying to figure out like. You know, like it's when they, grimy. yeah, when they find a hotel and they find the dry cleaning, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't play as there's a ghost happening. It plays as it plays very specifically as someone is, someone is trying to blackmail us. Yeah, and which I don't know. I like those movies in general, especially even like the more sort of I mentioned Dead of Winter recently on the show. It's the the kind of manipulative. Almost like how you appreciate something like My Soul to Take. Yeah. If there's a ridiculousness element to those movies where they're implausible and kind of uh, cheesy and hammy, and to the point where it's entertaining and it's ridiculousness, I can get behind it. I wouldn't say Diabolique, fa- you know, falls in that category I think- because it takes itself very seriously. But I, I will say that I, I think I, the film I setting it takes itself seriously, but it, it certainly has a taste for the grotesque. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say like it takes itself uber seriously, but just you know because he has his sense of humor always in his back pocket, and he throws it in there here and there. He's um, a lot like Hitchcock in that. Oh way. yeah, oh yeah, for sure. With but a very th- ghoulish kind of sense of humor. What it lacks, maybe in atmosphere, I think the film's setting is kind of like the driving force behind the the, the school. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say like I get a sense of the geography of everything, but it's especially in you know once we do get to that final sequence. But I think overall, I just like that it's confined mostly to the school. And, and I will say uh, again, as someone who mostly is familiar, who's not as familiar with foreign film as American, it. I watched. Uh, I, I last night I was too tired. I could not finish it, but I started watching uh, the Grand Illusion. Um, and it is amazing how, like, just how far ahead as far as just filmmaking technique uh, um, the French were and sure. <laughs> in front of Americans uh, in that early time, you know, in that early point. You like, like, you're watching a, you know, especially in something like the Grand Illusion. But I mean, that's Renoir. That's you're talking. We got to get our Renoir, Renoir on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've, yeah, but um, but even like in some of the just the scenes in which the headmaster is being horrible and all the children are eating, there's mm-hmm. so much better shot and sort of more cinematic, and there are a lot more setups, and it feels a lot less stagey than any similar scene that you would see in an American film. I really. I really dis- I've really discovered something that in- which is that I really love just like black and white French films the way they paint with light. Um, yeah, it feels so much yeah. superior to any other country that was working at the time. It's too bad they didn't do some horror films at the time. Well, I mean, there there's this, there's uh, Eyes Without a Face. There, it's it's it, there certainly wasn't a horror industry like there was in America. Or there oh. was in in England during the Hammer Horror kind of time, or there was in uh, you know Japan in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that Clouseau's films are are pretty much well. I won't say the the whole of their genre of film industry, but uh, you have Clouseau, you have some crime films, you have Eyes Without a Face, you have Beauty and the Beast, and then you have a hard time coming up with much else that we consider genre these days yeah yeah well i think i think lady diabolique is a, a fine example of a noir kind of 
horror movie with just like the kind of Hitchcockian elements told in a more subtle manner for the most part. I mean, I, I again, there there's definitely like some some elements about it that you come to expect from him. And I would I would say that just it, 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 if you want to sort of see the origins of kind of how like the the big you know reveal the big twist ending kind of came about uh this is probably one of the first examples yeah. of that i would yeah that's I, I understand a- that this is uh Clouseau's invention basically because uh his wife vera actually had a heart condition which he would eventually die from oh wow and that was the inspiration from it which apparently was different than the book that's and interesting that might also be um, one of the disadvantages of watching this with modern eyes is modern modern film audiences have immediately in these kinds of films been trained to look for the yeah. twist and to try to unlock the you know whether you're talking about Nolan or you're talking about Shyamalan like you, modern film audiences are always looking for the angles and so the fact that it's either someone blackmailing them or it's him back from the dead like the fact that they know like instead of existing in the moment uh, mm-hmm. I would say modern film audience your brain starts and, working yeah and I would and maybe that's even you know that's me too like I, I I could be guilty of just instead of uh, existing in the ba- in sort of the abstract sort of bafflement of what is going on in the moment I'm trying to figure out what the twist will be yeah um, I was a little bit of both I would say I was yeah. kind of in the moment but also trying to piece it together or trying to make guesses and um, I don't know there's just there's something about just uh, the leisurely pace of it, and I don't know, maybe just throw cool water imagery. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in. I don't. Know. I do like that as well. I yeah. do like. I do like yeah. there was some that he definitely founded a motif. It's not quite as great as seeing three women earlier this year in terms of cool water <laughs> imagery, but it's still uh, it's still pretty good. I still or really like it. Or even the scene in uh, Val Luton's uh, Isle of the Dead with the water dripping mm, on the where she's yeah. been buried. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can uh, we can move move right along. Um, I will have to sit out because the only two uh, the only two Clouseau films I've seen were the ones we talked about. But uh, let's give Robert a chance to have like a, a monologue <laughs> of sorts. I'm curious to hear about a couple of titles that you think are worth mentioning here. Yeah, um, first one up that I watched was uh, Le Corbeau, uh, which is uh, the Raven. Um, it's about a doctor in a town that start getting some uh, anonymous poison pen mail um, hmm. based on, uh, uh, well, basically accusing the doctor of performing abortions and having an affair with this woman, and it kind of spirals from there because you start to think that maybe random townspeople are adding to it, and it goes all over the place, and it's really a, uh, quite shocking uh, for its time. It's still pretty uh, shocking today. Um, stars uh, Pierre Frenet, who is in Grand Illusion as well. Uh, he plays the the doctor, um, and uh, I, I, it's it's as I said before, it's really uh, uh, quite brutal. Um, Clouseau made it. Uh, he was um, he needed work in the early '40s when the uh, Germans had taken over and they had founded Continental Films. Um, for the French film industry with basically the instructions that they weren't supposed to make anything political. Um, 
so he made like a, a murder mystery beforehand and then he uh, went to this and apparently everybody was shocked at how far he went with it. Huh. Uh, the Vici hated it because it kind of call out informers and uh, oh, wow. uh, made them look bad. The leftist resistance press hated it because it made the French people uh, the common people look bad. The Catholic Church hated it because it was so sordid. <laughs> he was like fired two days before the film opened, and then it went on to be a big hit. Uh, the only people who didn't hate it were just the the, the population of France. And it, it's, a, it's a really good film. It has uh, lots of memorable characters. Uh, um, and the, it being so sordid as it is makes it hold up very as a modern film very much. Um, and uh, after the after the war, apparently it was the um, left press was still so uh, pissed off at him that they tried to uh, ban him from making films for life. But some of his uh, filmmaking friends uh, uh, basically stepped in and uh, uh, said, "No, no, no! He he was really calling out the informers. He was re- he's really being patriotic, and he got a two year ban instead of a lifetime ban." If that makes any difference. Wow. Yeah. I I even uh, read that uh, one of my favorite uh, <laughs> philosophers, existential writers, Jean-Paul Sartre, was, uh, was quite the defender of his films. And I can see why after, I mean, obviously this was before Wages of Fear, but still, like, existentialism is kind of something I, I really got into hardcore in my... Uh, Early tw- early to mid twenties, and there was something about uh, reading Jean Paul Sartre that really spoke to me for a little bit of while there. But I can see some why they would be buddies because of their worldview, and it's interesting to read. Like he had all these sort of uh, uh, responses based on on this on this particular movie uh, from all all walks of life. That's pretty incredible. That. You know that he got so many people riled up. That's that's really uh, fascinating to learn. It makes me want to watch this movie. Oh, I, I recommend it. It's very entertaining, um, and like in the the later films, it's full of characters and it, it's very explicit. I mean, one guy says that he shoots up with morphine. <laughs> uh, they said the main doctor's accused of pouring abortions, and he has a one night stand with a woman and knocks her up even, and he's still the hero of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I love about Talk Clouseau about in general. How explicit! Like I love the kids at the very end when the when they're showing the wicker basket to the detective. He goes, "We fucked up, didn't we?" <laughs> like they're really explicit with the language and like, "Oh, this is the '50s. That's amazing." Uh, and again, just another thing that throws you off when you're used to sort of American films. Um, Jim, what, uh, the what only other, the only other one I yeah the only other one I got to watch was his documentary because I was very curious what what his take on a documentary would be, and it's a this seventy five experimental film called the Mystery of Picasso and it's pretty much Picasso himself. Uh, he created. Well, hmm? I, I I would say it's Picasso's brushstrokes himself. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, this incredible cinematic visual treat of like these drawings and paintings before our eyes, like each brush stroke seems to take shape directly on the screen. It's, uh, 
um, this like technique of um, filming like on a semi-transparent canvas with with ink, and it causes the image to show clearly through on the other side. And I think it took him like three months or something to make this. And uh, Picasso destroyed all the pictures afterwards, making the film itself the art, uh, which wow, is which nice. is which is really incredible. And uh, like, there's this kind of like kind of overwhelming score throughout it all, but it's still really uh, just a, a visual kind of like abstract now, experimental does it, does film. It, is it just an experimental film, or does it try to be a document? No, does there, it try to like go into a biography of Picasso, or not does necessarily? It, or does it not waste its time with context? There's an interlude, like in the middle of the film. <laughs> kind of a behind the scenes uh, shot that shows how they're actually doing this. Right, right. And they kind of make a set piece out of that. And they go, "Will we have enough film before we can capture this? Before he finishes the painting?" Yeah, it's sort so it's of kind of made in that meta in this. Right, it sort of breaks the fourth wall at one point because Clouseau himself asks his, asks, asks Picasso if he's tired, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, we see glimpses of him from beginning to end, but for the most part, he's completely uh, Picasso himself is completely obscured. But it's like you see, like him using these kind of like sharpie kind of pens provided to him, and uh, we get to see the results play out on the actual screen. So it's this really um, interesting mosaic uh, series of images that uh, you get to see how an artist really. Uh, organically create something right before your eyes. It's it's. There's a reason why the French government declared it a national treasure. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. Yeah, my, my wife compared it to uh, Fantasia in some aspects. I think that's probably the closest you're going to find to uh, uh, it as a documentary. Although I I I'm not sure how organic I think it is. I think y- yeah, Picasso is clearly fucking with us at times. They'll start making a painting of a fish and turn it into a rooster and then stick a face in front of it yeah (laughs) no that's i would agree with that it sounds like the inspiration for godard's uh sympathy for the devil in which you get to see the rolling stones and (laughs) the rolling stones create this song um Mm -hmm. of course in in between the in between those scenes there's interludes of incredibly didactic moments of like of like revolutionaries and like Black Panthers and all this stupid stuff that doesn't mean anything, but that's just because Godard's Godard, and I don't like him very much. <laughs> Aww, he's got some. Good I think Jackson Pollock also took inspiration. Also did like he Jackson. I don't think it was a famous film or anything, but Jackson Pollock had a filmmaker friend who hmm. um, who established like he set up a camera underneath a, like a pane of glass. So oh, you can see what it would cool. be like to be one of Jackson Pollock's paintings. I think there's some film of Jackson Pollock working that is sort of shot similarly. Hmm. Um, that was sort of taking yeah. inspiration. I, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, they do break up the style because there's like some time lapse stuff that they do instead right. of just watching stroke by stroke. So they, you kind of see uh, a variety of filming techniques used to, to go along with uh, the various paintings. If you and if you yeah. look on YouTube now, there's actually that's actually a very common thing for illustrators to do is they'll put videos online of time lapse of them drawing, uh, and you get to see them creating a drawing in real time. So again, Clouseau ahead of the curve, inspiring millions. Yeah, even more influential than Inspector Clouseau. If yeah, 
<laughs> say so myself. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, do you have one more? Yeah, I, uh, you're gonna have, you'll have to pardon my pronunciation of this, but uh, I saw the uh, mystery uh, police procedural Quay de Orfevres, uh, which basically, as I understand it, the Parisian uh, equivalent of naming a movie Scotland Yard. <laughs> uh, it stars Clouseau's uh, um, girlfriend of the time, Susie Dallaire. Uh, she's a upcoming uh, sex pot uh, torch singer, or maybe not torch singer, but a, a cabaret type singer, um, who's, who's get who had like a hit uh, song. She has a jealous husband, I believe it's Marceau, who looks like a kind of chubby Bob Newhart. So she's the sex pot. He's the uh, jealous husband. Um, she goes to a photographer friend of the husband. Um, so you, you get shots of her in uh, negligee and uh, stockings and garters. And the photographer uh, gives her one of those looks where you go, hmm, I wonder if this is uh, something that the uh, gay uh, um, fans are going to have a field day with uh, as subtext and then later in the film it turns out that no she's actually a lesbian the, the photographer is it's made explicit and the uh, person that finds out just kind of shrugs and goes eh, everybody has their uh, preferences um, so I, it, while at the photographer she tries to string along a, a rich lecher uh, things go bad and the uh, Letcher ends up dead apparently at her hand and the photographer count, uh, the husband goes over there try to uh, kill the guy and uh, finds him dead and then he doesn't have an alibi and complications ensue from there um, and the second half turns to the inspector uh, turns up and kind of tries to solve the mystery which is uh, a pretty straightforward uh, police procedural um I mean, it, it ends at Christmas, so you kind of know that things are going to get straightened out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what what I, I find is uh, the key to enjoying the film is it's it's really about all the characters that they uh, encounter. Uh, a lot of it is like backstage uh, interviews, so the police inspector will be interviewing somebody, and there's going to be a dog act in the scene, or horses backstage, or he'll walk past a a dressing room and a woman will pop up with just little pasties on. Oh, that's Barely covering up anything. Um, so it's kind of like, it's it's not much of a mystery, but just seeing all the characters and the atmosphere of the backstage uh, um, cabaret style going on is, is uh, Joy of the film. Yeah, I'll always love and it was old in old movies you'd see someone backstage like spinning plates or something. And then in, in newer movies you you'd be like having detectives walk through studio lots and there'd be people dressed as Roman soldiers and aliens and stuff. <laughs> I always just love the background players um indicating the the world the crazy world of show business. Um when did this movie come out? That was like on nineteen forty eight. Wow, so that's hmm. a, that's that's probably one of the earliest, like, explicit uh, gay characters in a film, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I, it has to be. Uh, I mean, or at least that are portrayed positively. Yeah. That's good. Um, well, that's interesting. I'm curious about his first film, too. I mean, it sounds like a sort of a, a crazy kind of a farce where it's, um, it's called The Murderer Lives at Number 21. 
and uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was later adapted into a show called "Don't Trust the Bee" in Apartment Twenty Three. <laughs> <laughs> So my, my understanding on that one is that the the it is kind of a play on the, the thin man. Only oh. instead of the detective solving the crime with the, his wife, he solves it with his mistress. I'm I'm a fan of the whodunit kind of thing. I mean, those can be really ridiculously fun for me sometimes. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I grew up uh, reading the Hardy Boys or like stuff with mystery elements to it. That every now and then I'm in, I'm on board for something like that. Uh, like a whodunit that's just all mystery and kind of, you know, doesn't take it seriously. And I like the idea of him starting off doing sort of a wacky French comedy with this, uh, you know, uh, thriller aspect to it. So I'd be interested to see what his debut is in comparison to something like Wages of Fear. Like wh- what his roots, you know, were, especially. Yeah, in- I mean, it didn't, get, it didn't get him fired by the Vichy government, so it, it, it's probably not as shocking. No stranger to controversy. Mm-hmm. Man. Well, he liked to push a lot of buttons. And yeah. uh, well, I, I should I should add that apparently uh, part of the wages of fear was inspired when he uh, took his wife on a honeymoon to uh, Brazil, which is her uh, home country. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to shoot a documentary there, but apparently the Brazilian government wasn't happy with him shooting uh, all the uh, ghettos that he was shooting. Yeah, I remember that from the uh, documentary I watched on the Wages of Fear uh, second disc, and then, but then he sort of planned Wages of Fear around just knowing the countryside and just imagine. I imagine he he had encountered a number of treacherous roads himself, and he just sort of imagined the scenario around it. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it was based on a book, but oh, okay. I think he, he uh, uh, certainly probably. Uh, Elaborated on that book, right? Um, or at the very least, made it much more visceral <laughs> and uh, brought a level of understanding. And that's you know, one of the other things I actually liked about Wages of Fury was that um, how much the the village felt like a real working yeah. village with all mm-hmm. these real people in it. In addition to these sort of estranged foreigners who are trying to get out. Much more realistic than the village in Three Amigos. Much more realistic than the village in the village. Very good. Yeah. Also had a twist ending. <laughs> what a twist. You, you know, know I, was, I was recently at a party and I was defending the village. I was I was I should say I was drunk, but I was also defending the village. I it's okay, like I forgive you. I kinda like the, I like it. I actually yeah. don't hate the village. You know what I like about the village is that it's is the the way that the whole story is told is more of a fable fairy tale sort of a thing mm-hmm. with the very arch- with Adrian Brody kind of playing this very archetypal fool yeah. and these very that's actually Jay Shields' defense of Lady in the Water too. Oh, well, Lady in the Water is tedious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the any number of fairy tale tropes can't save that movie from not being interesting. But the, what I like about the village is a lot of people they they shit on the twist, but like. After the rest of the film, you know, it it's a real a twist being unrealistic doesn't betray the tone of the film. Right. So um Well, I'm 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 somewhat curious. I doubt I'll make ever make the time anytime soon about the American remake of Diabolique, especially since it stars Sharon Stone. Who what who remade Diabolique? I, I, I was wondering. Was, I don't know if it was anybody famous. Was it just called Diabolic? Yeah. Uh-huh. Or it was, yeah, I guess it would be Diabolic. Oh, it was Diabolic. Diabolic? Yep. Huh. 
Oh, he was nominated Me? for the uh, he was nominated for worst director <laughs> for the Avengers, that, the uh, 1998 Avengers. Okay, that guy. Yeah. So what? But what era was it? Was this 80s Sharon Stone? Was this 90s yeah. Sharon Stone? Uh, 96. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Supposed to be terrible, apparently. Yeah, why bother? I, yeah. didn't, I didn't see the remake of Breathless or The Vanishing either. But uh, apparently, the remake of Wages of Fear is supposed to be pretty damn good. Yeah, Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, I, I should add that uh, apparently Otto Preminger uh, remade uh, Le Cabot in, uh, um, in the 50s. I believe it was uh, uh, like letter number 13 or something like that. So, hmm. obviously, other people have taken inspiration from him, right. either directly or indirectly. Well, I gotta say, I'm I'm really interested in checking out more of his work. Much like we had the experience with Joseph Losey. Um I, I, I what can I say? Wages of Fear is now one of my favorite movies of all time. Yep. Uh, his the, the the way he reveals the darker side of humanity, but manages to uh, make really great uh, suspense out of all these incredible. Uh, Sequences, uh, uh, something that everybody should experience, and uh, I, I, I really enjoyed Diabolique as well. But we'll um, definitely report back if we ever do catch up on on more of his work in the future. I'm sure. Yeah. So thanks so much, Robert, for really coming aboard, coming aboard, kind of like last minute here for this director. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad I could help out. Yeah. yeah. If you want to know how the sausage is made, dear listeners, uh, it, a lot of our the directors we choose are because we know people we want to have on, yeah. and then we ask them what directors they'd like to cover. But in this case, this was director I wanted to learn more about, uh, so I chose him without necessarily having anyone in mind, and uh, we, we sort of started to panic when we realized we didn't have anyone. But uh, Robert Robert volunteered, and uh, I'm really so happy he did because he knocked it out of the park. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you're welcome, guys. Yeah, you're um, welcome ne- back next, again next, next time. Next time you have me back, I'll have to pick a director. Yeah, Terrence. Well, next time we have you on, I promise it'll be Terrence Fisher. Well, that'll be excellent. Yeah, that'll definitely happen for sure. I honestly like I I do want to say like in I think about three different emails that you were legitimately emailing us about like Ridley Scott or other directors. You mentioned. Terrence Fisher, and you mentioned. By the way, you guys should do a Terrence Fisher episode. <laughs> you've certainly you've certainly been ringing that bell for a while, and yeah. uh, we really appreciate. Pays off. Yeah, we really appreciate all your emails too, Robert. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and you've been one of the few people that have actually left us a voicemail, which mm-hmm. we'd like to encourage you to do as well. What's we the number should, for that voicemail, Jim? You know. I think I should know it by heart at this point, but I don't. It Hold is, on. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I let me, it. Let me do it again, and then I'll... Let me pitch it to you again, and then you'll say it. What's the number of that voicemail, Jim? 224-366-9528. By Menon. <laughs> um, and please do... You know what? You're better off just visiting the podcast. Um, wait a minute. Visit the website. There you go. At directorsclubpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at dcpodcast.com. You can email us, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And head over to iTunes. We've been getting some very nice reviews lately. Uh, feel free to do the same. You know, just click on the five-star rating and leave us a review as well. It, it, it there's, there's a lot of algorithms that go into what... Uh, I t- what uh, uh, what podcasts show up in people's uh, sort of faces when they go on iTunes, and every review and every every rating really does help. So thanks for all of them, and uh, if for all of you who haven't done it yet, do it, do it. 
please. And um, I'm on Twitter at Instant Jim. Same with Letterbox Instant Jim. I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapole. Still don't have a computer, so I'm not updating my viewing journal. Robert, where can people find you? Um, these days, they can really find me at where the longtail ends dot com. Um, I'll, I'll have a a new uh, article up next week, so I I look forward to any comments I can hear. Excellent. Look forward to that as well. All right. Well, thanks again. Um, our next episode we're really looking forward to as well because we're going to, you know, usually we do a two-film focus, but we're going to go ahead and bump it up to a trilogy for this particular director. That's right. We're covering the Park. first three Phantasm movies. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> we're actually covering Park Chan-wook or Chan-wook Park or... Depends on if you're in China or in, in a Western country. That's correct. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about the Vengeance trilogy. We're talking about... Uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. We're talking about Old, Old Boy, Boy, and we're talking about Lady Vengeance. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. That's going to hope- be fun. Ho- hopefully I can watch Thirst finally. I've been meaning to see it. Yeah. Uh, I'm an android, uh, no, you're but not. I'm okay with that. You're, That's pa- a good Patrick, one by- you're, you're not an android. You're a human being. Um, JSA is another one that you should see. Hmm. That was the movie he made before Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It's sort of a bigger scope kind of war movie. It's really oh, wow. good, as a matter of fact. Interesting. Um uh, joint security area so yeah we're really excited to talk about Park Chan-wook he's a very interesting director and he's releasing his first American film I think fairly soon yeah sounds great I'm really looking forward to that yeah. we're going to have a guest uh, Brian Talerico on I hope that's how he pronounces it. why did name. you bother listening to this one listen to the next one <laughs> no listen to yeah listen to all of them uh-huh. except the first six yeah don't bother <laughs> the first six yeah so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks for Park Chan It's just someone pouring a liquid into a hole as slowly as possible. Like, in the wrong hands, this could have been... It could have been... Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank, <laughs> sorry. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Love to get to know you. A young boy is persuaded by Bill Pullman by a family friend to hate to break into his search of a drug to have the power to their valuable coin it's a tale of madness. the video age. Do 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 do
railroad transforms into terrifying energy source that can only be battled by an athlete who connects with him through dreams. What the fuck? Did you hear that fucking synopsis? What the fuck? Let's talk about Shocker. Once again. Because I couldn't believe that shit.